I've been a pastor for 35 years in a regular mainline denominational church. But after I finished my pastoral work uh, some 10 or 12 years ago, I began to look back and reflect and realize that my pastoral style was different from any other pastor that I've ever known. Uh, because I had, somehow or other, I picked up very early on a sense of the importance of actually discipling people, making disciples, working with people long term over a period of months and months and months, getting a relationship with them, helping them to actually follow Jesus, helping them to connect with God and stay in that connection, helping them to, to do all the things that Jesus actually commands, and then walking with them uh, as they struggle to get it right. You know, for example, Jesus says, forgive your enemies. Well, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Um, you can't really help a person do that by telling them from a pulpit and having them sit down there in the pew and they get it. No, I mean, you've got to, you've got to walk with people. You've got to help them. And, uh, and so it, it was kind of a unique thing that I did all during my 35 years uh, in pastoral work that I would, in addition to preaching and all the things that preachers normally do, I would have groups, uh, discipleship groups. Um, I started out with fresh bread groups. Um, actually, this is the third or fourth edition. Each one had a different title, but it's basically the same teaching. We just go through the basics of what a Christian does, and we get together, and we talk about it, and we try to do it, and we we share testimonies uh, of what happened when we tried to do it, and you know, and and, and failures, and you know, why why is it so hard? And, and but on a, on the other hand, wow, God did this, and and it would it would be really exciting, actually. Um, almost every uh, group that we had had its share of exciting adventures with God. So then after that, I created a further study for, for these groups, food groups, a balanced diet for Christian growth, and we'd get into the basic uh, ingredients of Christian living, uh, faith, uh, holiness, and love, and look more deeply at what the scriptures actually recommend. And we we talk about, yeah, how practical is this? How can, how can we actually live this kind of lifestyle? So that was the kind of unique thing that I, I felt um, was my calling. And, you know, honestly, the, the people that I would meet with in these groups, discipleship groups now, it's not Sunday school, it's not, you know, doctrinal it's Bible studies. No, no. It's the purpose of the group is to actually live out the Christian life. Let's try it. And um, those were the, the rewards of ministry. That's where all the rewards were for me for 35 years was just seeing people wake up to this and live it out. And so that's what I want to recommend to any pastor who's living 
uh, listening to this uh, video, and, and I'd like to tell a few stories, not from my own experience, but other stories to illustrate the importance of discipling, discipling people, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe what he has commanded. It's actually the commission of the church, although if you went into many churches, you wouldn't know it because nobody's doing it. So here's a, a story. Uh, about tw 10, 12 years ago, uh, my wife and I visited Scotland, and uh, we took the opportunity to go to the Isle of Lewis, which is in the far west in the um, Hebrides Islands. This is where they had a great outpouring of the Spirit of God in 1949, and it lasted for three years. So um, I actually had the opportunity to stay with and interview uh, Donald McPhail, who was one of the leaders of that revival. In fact, when it happened in 1949, he was a, in his late teen years, and he was one of the main intercessors uh, for the revival that brought the revival on and, and maintained that continuous presence of God on the island. Maybe I'll just read a little bit uh, of what it was like uh, just l looking at the book that Donald gave me, which he said, well, this is the best account there is, and it's uh, Bright and Shining Revival, an account of the Hebrides Revival, 1948-52, to 52, by Kathy Walters, an excellent account, by the way. And so at one point, for example, um, the, uh, the people began coming out of the church as they were, had experienced God in the church. And it says, as the preacher came out of the church, the Holy Spirit swept in among the people in the road like a wind. They gripped each other in fear, in agony of soul. They trembled. Many wept. Some fell to the ground under conviction of sin. Several men were found laying by the side of the road in such distress that they couldn't even speak, yet they had not been anywhere near the church. So great was the supernatural moving of God that most of the homes did not escape the conviction of the Spirit, and the routine of business was stopped so that the islanders might seek the face of God like Nineveh of Bible days. The town was changed, lives and homes transformed, and even the fishing fleet, as it sailed out into the bay, took with it a precentor to lead them in prayer and worship singing. Duncan Campbell, who was the preacher, who the evangelist preacher who was kind of leading this revival, in his biography by Andrew Woolsey, describes the revival as a community saturated with God. The presence of God was a universal, inescapable fact at home, in the church, and by the roadside. Many who visited Lewis during this time became vividly conscious of the spiritual atmosphere before they even reached the island. So that's Kathy Walters' description. And uh, my question for Donald, and this is really why I went to the Isle of Lewis and, and wanted to have an interview. I wanted to ask him questions that you just can't read about in books. You know, someone who was there, I wanted to be able to talk to that person and get their impressions and, and ask them one main question, which is, 
why did the presence of God lift off the island after three years? Why didn't, why, why was it still happening? What changed to return things back to what we call normal? See, because I believe that what they were experiencing there was the kingdom of God. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Suppose it actually happened. So the church is there, I believe, to pray that it would happen and then to deal with what comes as a result when God's kingdom does come on earth as it is in heaven, you know? And so why not? And and so I was asking him, why did it stop being heaven on earth? You know, the people were suddenly convicted of sin and they stopped doing those things. And and so then you know the bars all shut down and you know people began to live lo- loving lovingly. Um, it, and they stopped doing the things that hurt each other, and it was much more heavenly for three years. But why why did it stop? And so this is what he said. Um, he said during the time the three years the 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 teenagers the younger ones felt the need to uh help all of these people who had just encountered God and the holiness and the presence of 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 God and the king Jesus uh so then they felt the need to help them to respond you know and in other words what do we do about this we've met God so now what? And and so they would they would take these people into their homes to uh, uh, to to have groups home groups in which they would just they would it it would be like a crowd of people gathered in a living room and they would just deal with God the whole time they would just answer questions and this is what you do and they would teach and they would train the people how to respond and and these meetings were frequent and it was mainly the teenagers it was mainly the young people who led them well uh, that went on until 1952 and what Donald said was that the pastor of his church came to him at one point and said would you please stop the home meetings because I'm afraid that you might teach something wrong, and um, I would rather just have you not teach them anything at all than to um, continue with the home meetings and maybe um, things would get out of hand. Now, things had already been going for quite some time. It had been three years. What it was that uh, caused this kind of concern, I don't know, and he didn't really talk about the details, but what he said was he felt like when the pastor of the church asked that they stop the home meetings, that he was under authority and he should do as the pastor wished, but he did not feel comfortable about this. He didn't feel it was what God wanted, and some things were starting to go off track, and therefore... um, that was why he said that um, 
he felt that God's presence lifted off the island. So what, what I'm saying here is, um, God provided for a means for all of those new Christians to become disciples. It's taking in the harvest. You know, if God is going to come and bring a harvest tide, then the church's responsibility is to take in the harvest. What does that mean? It means to do what Jesus asked us to do. It means teaching them to obey what I have commanded. Those young people were doing that. In the church, I'm not so sure that's what was happening. You see, we, we do church because of tradition. We have denominational doctrines, denominational traditions. We feel it's important <coughs> just to do those things. That's what our, our, our professional uh, uh, group is overseeing us to make sure we do it right. But is it what God wants? You know, is it what Jesus wants? He's asking us to make disciples, not just to have religious services. So I, I just think we need to look and, and ask ourselves, <clears throat> what's the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of living? Why are we doing the things that we're doing as Christians? You know, uh, we need to go back to some basics here and ask ourselves, what does God want? What does God want? And, and do that, you know, and, and what other people might think, what, uh, what uh, uh, denominational tradition might dictate. Hey, let's get back to God and let's get back to doing what Jesus did and asked us to do. Here's another story. This is of, of Pastor Paul Cho Yonggi in Seoul, Korea, a very famous pastor, uh, pastor of the Yoido Full Gospel Church in Seoul. And uh, in his book on small group cell groups, uh, he tells his story. Um, he started that church with the ambition, okay, this is pastoral ambition, and he wanted to, to have the biggest church in Korea. And he knew that the biggest church in Korea at that time was the Yongnak Presbyterian Church. So he his goal was to build a church that was bigger than that one. All right, well, he got the church up to almost that size. 20,000 members, I believe, was the figure. When inexplicably, he was stricken with a wasting disease. And it got so bad that he could hardly crawl his way up to the pulpit on Sunday morning and preach. And then he'd have to crawl his way back down again. He had no energy at all. And you can imagine a church of 20,000 people and he has no energy to do any of the things that pastors are supposed to do for their churches. And so he goes to his elders who are all wealthy businessmen, Korean, South Korean businessmen. And, and he says, you got to help me. You know, I can't do it. You know, I'm sick. And, and he said, well, you're the pastor. Uh, we, we aren't the pastor. You are. It's your responsibility. And besides, they're all too busy. And so uh, 
Finally, he comes up with the idea of going to the women of the church. Now, in Korean society, at least in that day, I think things are changing a little bit, but in that day, uh, the women were the followers and the men were the leaders, okay? According to Confucianism, which had really um, penetrated the culture and uh, the, the, the churches pretty much followed that um, basic social pattern. And uh, so it was a, a new idea that Cho would turn to the women for leadership. And the idea he had was that the women would open their homes and have cell groups and he would train the women, but the women would do the ministry in their homes. Um, I mean, this was a totally new idea and only desperation would have suggested it to Pastor Cho. But here were the women who were opening their homes. Now, if you've ever been in, in Seoul, Korea or, or the cities of, of South Korea, they're dominated by these uh, high-rise apartment buildings. There are thousands of high-rise apartment buildings. So the women would, he would tell the women, go up and down the floor and invite people to your home for these uh, cell group meetings. And, uh, and this was wildly successful. Um, so pretty, pretty soon all these women were having cell group meetings in their, uh, uh, their apartments and um, they were discipling Seoul. They were, they were, he was training them how to make disciples and they had opened their homes to do this work and dealing with how to follow Jesus. And, and Jesus would take care of the problems, but they needed to learn how to follow Jesus. And so that's, that's the way it was. And the women caught onto this and really took hold and, and, and did it. You know, so here's uh, leadership. And that's, that's how the church went from 20,000 to 800,000 people, was because Pastor Cho, almost by accident, uh, discovered that he could establish a pastoral structure, a pastoral structure based on the idea of making disciples, not just having church, but we're going to make disciples. That's the purpose of the church after all. So now I'm creating a pastoral structure so that that can happen. And it did. And that's how this mega church. Now I'm not, I'm not really one for mega churches. I don't really believe in um, the kind of pastoral ambition that Pastor Cho had. I believe it's just important for us to do what Jesus said not with regard to building big churches, but just so that we're faithful to our Lord. You know, why not? Hey, we could, we could actually build a church that's based on making disciples, where we would train our people how to just invest in other people until they get it. And then they'd be ready to invest in yet other people until they got it. You see? So we're the goal is to bring people to maturity in Christ. And, and we need a pastoral structure for that. Finally, let me tell a third story. And this is, I, I tell the story of John Newton 
in my series, uh, Glory Through Time. You can find it there. I'm not going to retell that whole story except to say that John Newton um, was a wild guy, um, and he, he was not exactly um, discipleship uh, material, uh, but he was coming back on the ship Greyhound, and uh, uh, he loved to sing uh, blasphemous songs about God, you know, ridiculing Christians, and you, you know, you get the idea. And, and yet here he was um, on the ship Greyhound in 1748, trying to get back to England, but this huge storm coming up, and, and for weeks just preventing them from making any progress, and, and just trashing the ship, just beating the ship in, into pieces, you know, and, and uh, they're all uh, beginning to feel like uh, they're goners. Well, one night at the, at the climax of this whole thing, uh, John Newton is, is at the helm of the ship, and um, suddenly God is there. Now, this is a God, the God that he has been uh, ridiculing for uh, the last many years of his life uh, as a sailor, and uh, he suddenly realizes that God is there, and he is holy, and he loves him, and and says nothing, and yet there is a presence, and the presence is itself the message. And from that day, which was uh, March 10, 1748, from that day, he decides he's going to follow Jesus. The problem is that when he got to England, the churches were not equipped to help him to learn that. You know, the, the what you do... If you're a Christian, you just come to church, dress up and come to church. That's what Christians do. And so the things that he decided to do at that point were some of the most regrettable things, much worse than before he became a Christian, because nobody was telling him how to be a Christian, how to follow Jesus, how to connect with God. And so he actually became a slave trader. He became the captain of a slave ship. And it was during the next six years after he decided to follow Jesus that he did some of the most reprehensible and regrettable things in his entire life, things that he would bitterly, bitterly regret for the rest of his life, even after he became an Anglican clergyman. And he could not get rid of the memories of, of what he did during that first six years. And uh, then he met John Wesley. And John Wesley was a guy who was a part of the Great Awakening. And by the way, the, the kind of thing that, that John Newton had happen is the kind of thing that God was just doing. He was just going around and meeting people and um, conveying his presence. And so, you know... Uh, this was happening right and left throughout England and throughout our country, uh, the United States. And so uh, here's John Wesley, who realizes that the church is not equipped to make disciples. So he invents uh, a pastoral structure called Methodist societies. And 
if the Methodist societies are going to get together separate from churches, you know, the church is supposed to be doing this, you know, but you, you got to create this whole separate structure in order to make sure that somebody's teaching these people how to respond to the presence of God in their lives. Well, John Wesley has a long conversation with John Newton, and John Newton gets straightened out. He immediately leaves the slave trade, and he uh, becomes a, uh, an Anglican clergyman. You know, and it's, it's, it's tragic when people don't get any kind of teaching or any kind of help in, in how to respond to God. How do we, how do we actually follow Him? And how do we actually get to know Him? And so that's what I'm hoping that our series here can help to accomplish. And I would like for you to um, seriously consider whether um, as a pastor you couldn't add a pastoral structure that's designed to actually do what Jesus wants us to do, make disciples.